So you've heard a bit about me and something of the ministry that I'm currently involved in. You've heard something about the, the joys and opportunities of University Chaplaincy and I've also a little bit about the challenges in the time we've had. What I'm going to do is, is pick up on an aspect of ministry with students that I've certainly noticed in my time as a university chaplain and also which I think has links to the Bible reading that we heard a moment ago. Uh, can I echo what, what John said and, and, and say a big thank you to Esther for, for reading that lengthy passage and for reading it in such a way that we could really hear the details? Because one of the things I think that will uh, I, I want to sort of impress is that sometimes I think it's in the little details of this story that we actually learn a great deal about its meaning for us. And you enables us to hear those details very clearly, which, which helps me a great deal in the message I hope to, to share. So thank you, Esther. Now, it's often been said, and I think this is quite right, that university chaplaincy involves and includes ministry to young adults at a crucial time when they're making a transition in their life journeys. The transition is particularly in the fore. Going to university, as I'm sure some of you remember, is a big change, and it's likely to have a significant influence on the direction that life goes from then onwards. So it's a big change and it's often a disorienting change. There's a move to a new city. For many of our students, it's a move to a new country with all the strange habits and ways of, of being that, 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 that we have culturally to learn. Students obviously are there to learn a lot of new things and are expected to sort of go up a gear to a new level in the, in the extent to which they are, are motivate themselves to learn and go out and find what they need to discover. They also need new life skills. I've had plenty of conversations about uh, that, that have kind of picked up on, on what it's like to sort of learn to cook healthy meals uh, and, and also learn to manage on a budget. Uh, those will often uh, come. And then inevitably, as you can expect, there's the learning to get along with new people the new people you find yourself in a flat with, the new people whose personal habits and attitudes and outlooks may involve a bit of compromise. I'll leave a lot of that to your imagination. But you get the idea. It's disorientating and it's change. And it's, it's a kind of shift in phase from one time of life into another time of life. All of that's being learnt and explored. Uh, and often it raises its tensions. In all, university life brings a newfound freedom to explore who you are, what you think, and how this is pointing the way for your future. For most people, it exposes them to a great variety of new peers, and they have their different backgrounds, different beliefs and priorities. And you're rubbing along with all of this as you're trying to work out for yourself who you are and where you're going. Universities are certainly places where you get a strong sense that life is a journey and it has twists and turns on this journey, often unpredictable twists and turns. And as a chaplain, part of what I hear of this change is about faith, faith journeys. As I think back over the conversations I've had with students, which have started with a student seeking out a chaplain specifically, to coming in and saying, I'd like to talk to a chaplain. Can we go somewhere and have a chat? Often those conversations are about making sense of faith, making sense of faith in this time of change. And I'm going to share just three 
examples from my experience of this. I've had a student sit down and say, I'm studying to be a doctor and I love it. Although the extra study takes so much time that I can't spend so much time doing the church roles that I used to do before I came to university. Is my study getting in the way of my walk with God? Different question from a different student. Chaplain, where I come from, Mike, everybody believes that following Jesus means doing this and not doing that. Again, I'll leave the this and that to your imagination. But here I'm making friends with people who think it's okay to be Christian and to do that, as well as this. Now, I think my family would be shocked back home. How should, what should I do with this? Should these people be my friends? And how should I react to their views? about following Jesus. And then a third one, one that I think I will always remember. A student who sat down and said, having checked the door was shut first, do you know, I don't know where it's coming from, Mike, but I cannot shake off the idea that God is real. Everyone I know, my family, my friends, they'd all find it ridiculous if I said it to them. So I don't dare talk about my feelings. I'm telling you, because I think you won't find that ridiculous. And also you're not one of my family and one of my friends. I can tell you this and go on my way. What's going on? Just three stories, there are others. And all with these kinds of questions. What's going on? How should I react? Mm. How should I live now? Let's have the first slide up, David, please. Now, I've shared a few memorable moments from chaplaincy with students because that's often where I meet these sorts of questions, how they arise in these disorientating terms of change that can occur in our walk of faith. I expect most, if not all of us, and certainly me, whatever our life story, we could all think of moments when questions like this about faith have come up in a time for us that's been disturbing and full of change. What's going on? How should I react? How should I live now? And for me, the experience of other people, as well as my own experience, all comes to mind when I read this story from Luke's Gospel, a story that we've heard today. They come to mind when I imagine these two followers of Jesus walking away from Jerusalem, dismayed and anxious, doubtful, disorientated, and all because the Messiah they pinned their hopes on had just been executed by the Roman powers they'd been convinced he would save them all from. These two disciples could still measure the time in hours since Jesus had been crucified. And as we will have recalled in our services over Holy Week, it was a gruesome death. It was a humiliating death. Perhaps just as bad, crucifixion was a routine death in the Roman eyes. These two disciples had to deal with the fact that Jesus had been killed as if he was just one more troublemaker, easily dispensed with, all by the usual means of execution. And they had this question to wrestle with as well. 
Why are these women who went to Jesus' tomb telling a story about the tomb being empty, about men in dazzling clothes telling them that Jesus was alive again? Cleopas and his companion were two of the group who had dismissed the woman's story as an idle tale, as wishful thinking too fanciful to dull the pain of their loss. That's what we'd heard just before this story. These are people who had been part of the group to dismiss the story that Jesus was no longer entombed. What is going on? How should we react? How should we live now? So there was plenty for these two disciples to talk about as they made their journey away from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus. Just as there's plenty for us to ponder when change unsettles us, when life throws experiences in our path that knock our assumptions off track. Luke has made good use of journeys in his gospel story. Much of the latter part of Luke's gospel actually unfolds as Jesus, we are told, is making his way, journeying towards Jerusalem. And for Luke, that journey is not just a, a way to sketch out a travel plan. When Luke talks about journeys, he has a more, far more important thing in mind. Journeys express the way in which God's saving purposes unfold over time. Journeys are ways in which Luke can show people being drawn in and going along Jesus' way with him. And this is true of this journey that we've heard today. There's more going on in this journey that Cleopas and his companion make from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Just as their doubt and confusion in their time of change is one that we can relate to, so also I think the journey they are making as it unfolds speaks to us today as we wrestle with their questions, as they think, what is going on? How should we react? How should we live now? So here, if you like, is the core message that I hope to um, put across to you today. You see, I want to suggest that amongst other things, this story that we've heard points us to two very important truths about God's ways with us and about the ministry that we're called to together in response. I think that in this story, we discover a God who, who, who's all about making space for us to discover God's purposes, discovering it by making space. This is a God who patiently helps us to make our own connections with the guidance of God's spirit over time. So that's one thing. I want to suggest here a God who makes space for us to learn. Secondly, I think what we hear in this story is the suggestion that we are to play our part in God's plan and to do it in a way that reflects how God has acted towards us. Just as God makes space for us, so as Jesus' followers ministering together, our work is essentially about making space for other people. Space into which God's gracious Holy Spirit can work with other people's thoughts and feelings. Space through which God enables others to make their own connections. We learn as we make space, God is at work in us too. 
And what does all this mean in practice? I think what we hear in this story is something about the way that mission making space for God to act is to recognize that we need to be faithful and open as we journey with other people. That we're certainly to commit to staying with them as they wrestle with doubt and confusions and perhaps to share our own doubts and confusions along the way. It also means that we should recognize that the timing and the outcomes of people's faith journeys and our own for that matter, they're not ours to control. We commit to being there as Jesus committed to being there on the journey. And all of that requires patience. And also it means being open to the unpredictable, to not knowing when those flashes of insight might come for us or for others, for not being able to claim that we have a formula, a strategy that will make sure that other people become followers of Jesus, a tried and tested method. All of that is God's work. We faithfully try to make space for it to happen. I think seeing life as a journey entails this. I think it involves trusting that Jesus isn't just the person waiting at the destination. It's Jesus who is pointing the way and Jesus in spirit who is treading every step of the journey. That, if you like, is the key message for today. What happens on this journey away from and then back to Jerusalem to suggest this message? Why do I think this story gives this insight to us? Well, as I said, and as I've often found when reading the Bible or, or just thinking about my own experience of life, it's often the very ordinary and the very easily overlooked details that I think speak volumes. Take verse 15 in this story. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus drew near and went with them. Not Jesus stepped out in front of them, ripped off his shirt like Superman, bowled them over with his risen glory and hauled them back there and then to celebrate with the other disciples in Jerusalem. No. Jesus drew near and went with them. Jesus made their journey his journey, his own. And so that it was on their journey that eventually these two disciples would see who he really was. Have you noticed also that Jesus' first words to his disciples are an open question? What is this conversation you are having? Jesus doesn't go, never mind your reflections. Let me tell you what you need to know, and then you won't need to wrestle any longer. That's not Jesus' way. It's not his style. Jesus asked them to share their thoughts and feelings. It's not the quickest, possibly not the most efficient route to revelation, but maybe it's the way that takes seriously who we are as human beings, that makes us enables us to actually share in our own journey that makes it really ours even when Cleopas challenges journey Jesus with what could seem a rather impertinent question one that seems to make Jesus look ignorant Jesus still wants to hear from them first when Cleopas asks so are you the only visitor Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here Jesus says 
What things? You tell me. And only once their view of things is out in the open, then Jesus does start to equip them. He equips them by revisiting the scriptures that they know, but enabling them to think of them in a new way, enables them to make new connections. And so we hear Jesus, so we hear that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I have another image for you to look at on the screen if we go to the next slide. I'm hoping that perhaps for some of you at least, this image may help to, to give a real grasp of what's going on here in this conversation with Jesus at this point. If it does give any insights, then I think it's proof that from time to time, preachers can fiddle on Facebook and still find this is a helpful pastime because I found this uh, popped up on Facebook a couple of days ago. Probably seen this sort of thing before and you're probably better than I am with these sorts of tests. When I first saw this, for me at least, eight squares stood out straight away. How many squares? My mind went, well, there are eight, aren't they? I can see the four clustered in the middle and I can see the four in the corners. It took me a little bit longer, not, not too much, but a little bit longer to realize, of course, those are the obvious squares, but the whole image is a square. The squares didn't all need to be the same size. And the big square that encompasses all the other shapes, the squares, the rectangle, well, that counts as one as well. And once you've seen that the whole image is a square, other shapes, other squares start to emerge. So you can see combinations of squares and rectangles that themselves make up sort of medium sized squares, less obvious than the little squares or, or even the bigger picture. But there, nonetheless, I can see another four of those. There's a journey to be made with this. And the point is, it took time for me, at least, to see that there was more to the question than what was immediately obvious. It took time for me to see the bigger picture to see the big square surrounding the smaller shapes. And once I could see actually that the whole picture was a square, then I could start to see how particular details within it related to the bigger picture, how the squares and rectangles could make up smaller squares. Different things started to emerge, connections started to be made. I started to realize actually this isn't really an eye test. This is a test of perception, perception that unfolds over time. And this, I think, is what Jesus is enabling for these two disciples. He takes the vision that they have, the vision of a Messiah as a kind of freedom figure like Moses, <laughs> and enables them to see a bigger picture using the whole of Scripture. He enables them to see God's overarching story, starting with Moses and the prophets. This is what they needed before their eyes could be opened. This is what they needed to get that perception, which would relate what had particularly happened, what was really troubling them, Jesus' crucifixion, to relate that to the bigger picture, to the story that showed them that this was actually a key moment in God's ongoing plan, that crucifixion was the way in which God's power was made known, that new life, new resurrection could happen even in the face of death. In this conversation, this is God in Jesus making space 
for followers to recognize their experience and outlook in a new way with a perception that recognizes the picture, the picture that holds up hope, even in the times of doubt and disappointment. <laughs> and just as an aside, I have to say that that was important for me as a student. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a standing joke now. I, I finished a theology degree before I was actually baptised. And, and I ought to make it clear, I don't think everybody needs a theology degree in order to be baptised. And it wasn't actually the, the getting the degree for me that mattered. But actually, I needed that sort of space, that sort of journey in which I could ask questions, in which I could sort of see scripture opened up to me and learn about God. For me, at least, it took that time for me to finally feel that sense that actually I belonged in that story. Um, let me say again, it's not for it's not everybody's experience. There will be others who quite rightly have a kind of St. Paul Damascus Road conversion that's quite sudden and dramatic. And I certainly know people for whom that has been um, a key moment for them. But for others and for me, there's time. It took time. It took questions. It took it took the opportunity to just have people journey alongside me and stay with me in order for me able to see in a personal way what I've not been able to see before. Cleopas and his companion are not there yet. The God who in Jesus makes space for our thoughts and feelings to be aired, for new connections to be made, as I said, invites us to be space makers ourselves and to learn from being people who make space for others. God makes space for us so that we can make space for God to act in us and through us. And so... The journey reaches the point where they're approaching Emmaus and Jesus appears to be leaving these two disciples at home. I want to suggest that actually what you see here is God in Jesus making space for the disciples then to take an initiative to invite Jesus to stay. The animated film, The Miracle Maker, which I'm sure some of you have seen, really makes this point rather well. It depicts Jesus at this point in the story hesitating. And then there's a moment where both these two disciples actually have to urge Jesus to stay. And they're really making the point that here, these two disciples, they have their initiative to take. Jesus isn't inviting himself directly. Jesus is waiting for the invitation. That's the space. You know, Jesus is making that space so that they can take an initiative. If you want this faith journey to continue, this is your opportunity to invite it. Jesus is invited to be a guest in their home, and it's as that guest that new insights happen. And incidentally, that's one of the things I find interesting about your ministry as a church. <laughs> By not having your own church building, if you like, the, your own space, you are continually, quite explicitly, thinking of ministry as something which happens as a guest in other people's space, something which chaplains learn to get used to. So I'm interested in that aspect of how you think, and I think it resonates with this moment in the story. Jesus is invited to be a guest in their home. He doesn't carry them off somewhere to his place. He is a guest there, and it's in that context that new insight emerges. Jesus will take bread, bless it, and break it, all in a home that he has been invited to stay at. And Jesus won't then explain why breaking bread it identifies him as the risen saviour. This is what you need to understand by what I'm doing. He doesn't do that. The two of these two disciples will be making that connection for themselves. And no doubt all that they'd heard Jesus explain and interpret for them on the road, all of that plays a part. 
all of that learning about the big picture of scripture's story helps them and yet it will be their initiative. This moment in the story reminds me of the excitement I used to feel back in the days when digital photos were the stuff of science fiction, or at least the, the, the preserve of a few really enthusiastic uh, and prosperous camera um, fans. If you wanted to see the pictures you'd taken, well, then you needed to take your completed roll of film down to Boots the Chemist, leave it there, come back a week or so, and somewhere in the intervening time, that mysterious alchemy in the darkened room would have happened, and what was your rolled fil roll of film becomes a stack of photos. And for me, whenever I got that, I, I before I'd even left the shop, I'd, I'd open up the stack of photos, and I'd flick through them, and in flicking through them, the tumble of memories that these pictures depicted would all come back to me. I imagine this moment when the disciples' eyes are open and they see Jesus for who he really is. I imagine it a bit like this, that suddenly in that breaking of the bread, there's a tumble of memories that comes back for them, like the photos that you used to get stacked up. It's a moment when their memories of their journey with Jesus perhaps came to light. When was that moment when Jesus blessed and broke bread oh I remember it yes he had 5,000 people to feed now that was an eye-opener wasn't it perhaps they remembered those moments when Jesus went and had meals with other peoples when he was guest again perhaps they remembered though all those meals in which Jesus got a bad name for himself eating with tax collectors and others such a bad name that he got called a glutton and a drunkard because of the so-called bad company he kept these images tumbled down I wonder perhaps if there was a kind of sepia print there in amongst the statue of, of, of the stack of photos, a, a kind of very distant memory, one that was even before they were born. Perhaps they recognised from their own scriptures that moment in Exodus when Moses is leading the people in the wilderness and God gives them manna, gives, feeds their needs as they're out there in the wilderness. Perhaps they're reminded of all these ways in which God's generous and grace become revealed and all of that stacks together in a moment and they see Jesus for who he is and Jesus vanishes out of their sight again no explanation just an opportunity for Cleopas and his companion to play their own part to rush back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples what they had discovered and all in their own words David, could we jump the next slide and go to the fourth one, the, the last one in this? One of the things that actually I don't think had really sort of struck me until fairly recently, although it seems sort of obvious looking back, all these um, appearances that the risen Jesus makes after his death and resurrection and before his ascension, they're all actually to his own disciples. One thing that Jesus doesn't do, it seems, is make himself publicly visible to all and sundry whether they're believers or not he goes specifically to people who are already followers to kind of empower them so that they then go on and share the good news of his resurrection it's the indirect route again the route that enables us as followers to play our part the image you can see is the book that as a family we're reading together at bedtime we've as i'm sure um, those of you who have parented young children have, have done as well. We, we have a bedtime story that we read together. And up until now, it's always been a, a book that my wife or I will do most of the reading of. And then occasionally our daughter will, will feel that she wants to sort of say a bit, but mostly we read to her. 
If you look at the image, you'll realize that um, the, 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 the small print shows you that this is a play. This is the script of a play. It's not a book. It's the first time we've, we've done this, but, but because we were keen to read the book, we, we've taken it out. And instead of having a reader, a person who tells the story and everybody else just listening, because it's a play, at the beginning of each scene, um, we choose you know, who in the family is going to be which part, who's going to be Harry, who's going to be Hermione, who's going to be this... And then we read it as a play, as actors would do a read through. And it's been incredible, actually, how this has enriched the whole experience of, of story time at bedtime. Because you never know quite how another member of the family is going to read their part. They've got their own voice, but they put on a different voice. Their, their intonation might be different from how we do it ourselves, all that sort of thing. It seems to make the whole experience richer. It's still an author's script, but somehow it's become more our own because each of us is reading our own part with our own impersonations or voices or phraseology. And I wonder if that's a little bit like what's happening here and what happens for us. The disciples rush back to Jerusalem and they get to tell the story of what's happened to them in their own words, with their own intonation and phrases. It's still the story of God's spirit at work. God is still in the lead, unfolding the story, but it's the richer because we have our own genuine part to play. It seems likely that life after COVID will bring a lot of change for a lot of people. It already is now with the restrictions. And often that change will be difficult and confusing. I think in the days to come, it will be our calling as followers of Jesus to find the ways to make space for others, to voice their questions into this troubling time, to have their doubts and their fears heard. It will be our task to make space for them to make connections, to patiently help them on a journey, to enable them as best we can to see their troubles against a bigger canvas of hope, of renewal, of new life to come. It will be our task to try and discern the appropriate times to give an account of the hope that is within us, as scripture puts it, sometimes with words and sometimes as we bring signs of new life through the kinds of bread breaking gestures that I suggested might be in that stack of memories that they, um, the two disciples might have. As we show our generous hospitality or I should say God's generous hospitality through the hospitality we offer to others. As we risk our reputations, engaging with people that others would think beyond the pale. As we share something of God's inclusive love in our sharing of meals and all sorts of other ways in which we gather people as community. I rather like the first song we had, that line, sing in the middle of the storm. That's what we will be doing. We'll be singing God's story in a situation that in many ways will still feel stormy for others. And we will need patience, patience born of trust in the God who will determine things in his own good time and way. But that sort of patience, I think, is true to Jesus style, to the way in which Jesus shows us a God who makes space for us so that we can play a part making space for others. And so may we enable Christ, the journey maker, the journey's companion and the journey's end we make him known in God's beloved world. Shall we pray?
Loving God, you call us to serve and to serve through trust. You call us to reflect your power made perfect in weakness. You call us to echo in our own time and place something of the God who makes space for us, who's willing to undergo death for our salvation, who remains committed to being with us in spirit. In the past few days, our thoughts and the, the news channels that we've listened to have be very prominently about the death of Prince Philip. And through that, we've heard much about what it means to remain loyal, to be prepared to face unpredictable situations, to change our course and to do it in the name of service. So as we hear those stories, maybe we're reminded again of our call to service. May we be prompted by your spirit May we know your presence in our own doubts and confusions. May we be willing to be vulnerable with others, to be patient, and to show our trust in the God who is making all things new, who will be all in all. May we know what that means for each of us and for our lives together. For your kingdom's sake. Amen.